Hello, and welcome to the inaugural Bitcoin Butlers podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and this is my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. And a year ago, I never could have imagined, Matt, that we would be sitting down and doing this, but I think it's been quite a year of growth, discovery, and learning for the both of us. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, did you put in the intro music? I did not. You need to pick a song. I did not. What is the song you'd like to use for it? Um, I don't know. I got some ideas. I thought of a good one, though. Uh, do you remember the theme from Fletch? I don't. Bit by bit. <laughs> very, very good. Uh, I got that very one. Good. I got uh, Big Money by Rush. Not Money by Pink Floyd. Too cliche. Um, but, you know, there's a reason why they make royalty-free music. Um. (laughs) Well, we have a mutual friend in common named Joe Alterman, who I believe is one of the best piano players on the planet. And maybe he would be kind enough to record some intro music for us. See if maybe he can hook that up. Um, But, you know, on to more important things, uh, let's talk about how how we got here. Um, I guess it goes back to... 1985, I would say. 8th grade. 8th grade. I think our teacher in the 8th grade, and you'll remember this, although I don't think I may get it right. Was it Miss Raintree? Close. Miss Rainwater. Rainwater. Okay. Yeah. Um, I actually remember, I don't remember a lot of my teachers, but what I remember about her is that I was in the county spelling bee, and she drove me, it was like, 30 minutes away from our school and she drove me in her old crappy Pontiac to the spelling bee and it was very bizarre being an 8th grader in the car with a teacher. I don't know that that would be allowed today. Do you know that I remember what words you got wrong in the spelling bee? I remember. What was it? Core. That's right. Like Marine Corps. You forgot the S. You forgot the S at the end. Yep, came in second in the Fulton County Spelling Bee. Oh, well. Oh, well. And that has scarred you ever since. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it haunts me to this day. So so moving on, how did we get here? How did we get here, and how did we go so deep on Bitcoin over the past year and a half? Um, well, there's a number of things, I think, that, that got us here. Um the first thing was that we both have kind of crossed paths with Bitcoin over the past several years, but it wasn't really until 2020 um, where we both took you know a pretty serious interest in it um, for similar reasons. Uh, I think we both saw a lot of what was going on in the economy. We saw the level of money printing. We saw that um, there really wasn't a store of value that existed that was anything like Bitcoin. And as I got into it, I mean, it took me, what, 100 hours of studying before I understood it. But at that point, the hooks were into me. And, you know, I really understood it to the point where I don't really think there's any going back um, for anyone who's kind of gone down that rabbit hole and is now, you know, focused on making this the, not necessarily the primary asset that they're holding, but the um, they see it as the future of money, and that's kind of how I see it. 
Um, I feel like we're kind of in the internet in 1995-ish. Um, and so I think that there's really so much to come with it, but there's just, it encompasses so many things, whether that's um, economics, just monetary theory in general, um, philosophy. There are, you know, political or a, I would apolitical aspects to it, depending on how you look at it. Um, all of those things kind of got me interested and kept me interested. Um, and then, you know, we uh, we started talking on these weekly hikes that we would do uh, along the Chattahoochee River. And this was kind of our, you know, it was kind of our COVID uh, routine in 2020, where we would get out in the woods and talk through a bunch of these things. And um, we came up with some of these ideas of, of how can we help other people that are like us that, you know, have some experience in life and in business, but don't know anything about this new technology that's, you know, theoretically world changing. And, um, and how could we help people kind of get their foot in the door with that? And I think that started as something very different than what we're doing now. I agree. And I think that I remember when we, when we, I think one thing you said that I'd never really thought about before is that once you go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I don't know many people that want to, that have climbed back out or want to climb back out. There's a saying that you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you. And on a personal level, I do think Bitcoin has changed me, and I would say changed me for the better over the past year. You start looking at certain things differently once you go down that rabbit hole. And in some ways, it's, it, it's like a lot of the world around you isn't what you thought it was. You start to see things more clearly. For sure. Um, and that's, you know, it's not to be cliche about it, but... That's a pill that once you take it, you know, it does change you and you look at a lot of things very differently. I know I do. Um, and in many ways or most ways, I think it's it's for the better. Um, I think that there's uh, just incredible promise with what this technology can can do for humanity. I agree. So before we get started on that. How about if you talk about your background, your education, your professional career up until this point? Yeah, so um, I went to the University of Texas with you, um, studied accounting, got an accounting degree, went to work for an accounting firm, quickly realized that working for an accounting firm was not my cup of tea and uh, transitioned into company roles as an accountant, whether that was as a controller or uh, ultimately a CFO of a company. Um, and for the last 11 or so years, I've been running a consulting practice that is basically CFO for hire, for lack of a better term. I don't love that term, but that's what a lot of people call it. So, um, you know, I help companies that may need higher level accounting and finance help, um, they might have a great accounting department, but they don't have somebody who's thinking about those bigger picture, more strategic things. And, and that's really my background is problem solving. 
and that's a lot of what I've done for the past 11 years is helping business owners solve problems that other people in their organization organization can't. Um, and so, in a way, I think um, that's helped me to do a better job of what what we're trying to do here with Bitcoin Butlers, which is that it's really a it's a problem solving exercise. It's it's putting the pieces of a puzzle together. Um, and you know, Agreed. I want to hear about your background, um, how you describe your background, but. Um, you know, it was very, we were on very similar paths for a long time and we kind of forked off, um, into different careers, but, um, but now, you know, we've kind of come back together to do this and as much as time as we spent together over the years, we never really did anything work-wise together. Um, and so this is the first time. So tell me how, how you see yourself uh, and the path you took to get here? Well, like you, I went to the University of Texas. Like you, I did not really want to be an accountant. I never really had any plans on being an accountant, but I got a degree in accounting, and I'm pretty glad I did. Uh, I actually went to work for the same accounting firm as you. you. You sort of recruited me. You had been there for a little while. We both graduated college early, and so we were some of the only ones out of school at the time and you told me it's it's really not as bad as you think it is and I went to go work there I worked there for six weeks and I quit well I guess I just I guess I told them I was quitting after four weeks and gave them another two weeks and then after that I started a title company this was in 1994 I still have that company today over that time period I've started a number of other companies I think the most significant one or the most relevant one to this discussion is I started an investment newsletter and I took my Series 65, so I became a registered investment advisor. And that that really lit a fire for me as far as investing in the, the markets. I discovered that I didn't really like – I didn't really like the – the pain of telling someone or, or even writing about something because we didn't we didn't make recommendations, but even writing about investing concepts if people lost money on them. I just didn't really have the stomach to deal with people who were potentially losing money based on something I had said. Sure. And so while I enjoyed doing that very much and while I learned a great deal starting that business and running that business and writing in uh, educational material for that business, th- that wasn't for me. But what I took from that, I think, was a, a, a much more advanced understanding and knowledge of the stock market and how it works and how the valuation should work. And I used that to my personal advantage over, I guess it would be the last 15, 16 years. And, and that's sort of where Bitcoin comes up. So I had, I had really studied I'd studied anything that I was interested in. My investment strategy was to, to find a very, very limited number of companies that met the criteria that I had set out. And interestingly enough, I, I came up with a formula or a recipe for selecting companies and those companies end up being the FANG companies. You, know, you just didn't Facebook, come up with a clever uh, acronym. 
I didn't. And also, under my thing, Netflix failed my criteria. Mm-hmm. But most of my focus between 2005 and 2020 was in Apple. And I spent over 6,000 hours during that time period reading every piece of news, listening to every conference call from Apple. I would write out articles where I thought that I would estimate what might happen when new product launches came about. And I also tested out every device I possibly could, whether Google was releasing a new phone or BlackBerry was releasing a phone or Palm was releasing a phone or Apple was releasing whatever product it was. And I I literally put every product in my hands as best I could. And as part of that process, I actually stumbled over Bitcoin. So when I was doing my, my daily screen of the tech news, I read something about these new ASIC miners that were going to come online and be able to mine Bitcoin at a much higher level than had previously been done before they existed. Was that like before tw- the ASIC- 2012, 2013, somewhere around there? Yeah, I believe it was 2012. Yeah. The miners were delayed. They didn't come out for probably six to eight months after I saw that news. But I do know when I first looked at it, Bitcoin was trading at or the exchange rate for Bitcoin was at $20 a Bitcoin. And I tried to get some friends involved with this. I, I, I had a lot of things in my plate at the time, and I really didn't want to take on all. I just thought it was kind of a fun thing to do, and these new machines would come out, and maybe we'd buy like four or five of these machines. We'd mine some coins. We'd double our money and maybe a year or less. And then the machines would basically be worthless. And then we would just move on. Yeah. But when I tried to get anybody to do it with me, people thought I was a crazy person. Yeah, I was one of those people. <laughs> and, and that's understandable because the, the landscape that was out there in 2012 was very, very different to where we are 10 years later. Sure. Back then, you couldn't buy Bitcoin on an exchange. You couldn't buy Bitcoin from any kind of reputable place. I actually had someone in my office that wanted – he needed to use Bitcoin for something. I don't remember exactly what it was. And I believe he bought Bitcoin on eBay. <laughs> and the way it worked was that there was a Matchbox car that they sold for like $100. The car was a dollar. <laughs> you bought the Matchbox car for $100, and it came with like, I guess, $99 worth of Bitcoin. And how'd you get that Bitcoin? T- was there like a address on the on the car or something like that? I mean, how would you even access? Do you have any idea? I think it came with a piece of paper that had like keys to it, right? Private keys to mm-hmm. it, and and you would unlock <laughs> it that way. But I really don't remember. I didn't really pay that much attention to it, and I, I just thought it was a little bit silly. Like, I, you know, I didn't have anything against Bitcoin, but it was very hard to take it seriously back then. Sure. And then in 2015, a mutual friend of ours owed me a little bit of money and sort of as a goof, he just said, I'll pay you in Bitcoin. I've got some Bitcoin. I said, that's fine. And at the time, Bitcoin was the exchange rate for Bitcoin was about $250 per coin. Yeah. 
And I held that until 2017, and I got a little freaked out with the block size wars. I didn't really understand what was going on. They were talking about this thing splitting off, and there was there was like a little war going on. And admittedly, I did not put the work in to try and understand Bitcoin. But also at the same time, the materials that were available in 2017 are very different to the materials available now. And I'm also hoping that what we're going to do with this podcast is help add to the resources and the information that's out there for people who are interested in Bitcoin. Great. Well, let's uh, get into Bitcoin butlers and our best practices. Um, Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how we came up with the idea to, to publish best practices. Well, I, I, when, we, when we first started talking about this, this was probably early 2020, and Bitcoin was in the news quite a bit. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was going up very rapidly, and a lot of people in my world were interested in Bitcoin, but they really had no idea where to buy it, and so. My idea, or our idea, was to, you know, why don't we do something that's going to help people buy Bitcoin? Because we were getting asked that question quite a bit. Right. And then, as part of our process of, I'll just say, going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and getting a better and better understanding of Bitcoin, we realized that buying Bitcoin was very easy, but the other parts that were needed to securely hold your Bitcoin and to pass it on to your heirs was severely lacking and that is where you and I came up with the the five best practices for owning and securing bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I actually remember where we were in the woods when we first started talking about it and how we came up with them on the fly although in the beginning there were more than 5. So with that I'll let you go through what the five best practices are. Yeah, and just uh to add to that a little bit I think, you know, we did start out thinking that, you know, this was going to be more of like a concierge service to help people onboard themselves into Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, the idea was help people buy it, help people set their wallets up, help people run a node. Um, and in the middle of that, one of the what's now one of the best practices, which what I which I think is the most significant thing that we've dug into is the inheritance planning because we said, all right, well, we're going to put a significant amount of our net worth into this asset and we're going to hold it ourselves because if you own Bitcoin, really, you should be holding your own keys. But God forbid something happens to to us um, or to one of us, how does our family get to it? And how do you incorporate that into your estate plan? And so... I think we came up with these five practices, um, so I'll run through them. Number one, buy Bitcoin on a reputable exchange. Number two, store your Bitcoin in a multi-sig wallet. Number three, create a strong inheritance plan for your Bitcoin. Number four, run your own full node on the Bitcoin network with watch-only wallets. And number five is recurring maintenance to keep everything up to date and working properly. So. You know, we we put out this paper um, in the summer of 2021, and 
really the idea being that if you want to hold your own keys, then uh, these are the things that we think you should do to, you know, increase the chances of successfully holding your own keys and passing Bitcoin along uh, to future generations. I think we I think something else that happened along the way is that we went down to the Bitcoin conference in Miami and we talked to many of the thought leaders in the space and I think there was universal agreement probably to a person that one of the biggest black holes or one of the biggest areas that needed to be addressed deficiencies uh, was the inheritance planning and I think in a lot of ways that's understandable I also think that after we've gone through and created this I think very thoughtful inheritance plan that it's understandable why it was not there because it, it, it was pretty complex to solve that puzzle you talked earlier about you being a problem solver and I agree, I think you're an excellent problem solver. But this was a, a pretty interesting puzzle to try and solve. And with that, I think we have done a very nice job of solving it. And we will get into that in in later episodes of this. Yeah, um, I think one other thing that um, that we should touch on is the fact that we've spent a lot of time learning about all the different things that go along with these five best practices. And in general, we're not, um, we're not pushing any specific product for the most part. We want to tailor solutions based on what people's objectives are. And um, sorry, I lost an earphone there. Let me pop that back in. Um, and so, you know, we understand all of these five best practices from top to bottom, but Realistically, um, we feel like inheritance planning is probably the most complex and the least served area in the Bitcoin community, um, at least now. But um, but we feel like you know if somebody wants to come to Bitcoin Butlers and whether they own a ton of Bitcoin and they want to figure out how to secure it for their heirs or if they own zero Bitcoin and they want to go from, you know, zero Bitcoin to storing it in multi-sig and running their own node, we can help with that too. Um, so I think the, uh, you know, the plan here is to, um, to have a episode kind of for each of these practices and talk through them. So based on that, um, let's dig into Number one. Right. And one of the things I think you and I talked about with number one, which is buy from a reputable exchange, mm -hmm. is do you really need that to be a best practice? Isn't that kind of obvious that you would just buy your Bitcoin from a place where you can buy Bitcoin? Well, that part of it might be obvious, but the problem with it is that there are numerous other ways to buy Bitcoin other than on a reputable exchange that are far more likely to result in you getting ripped off than if you just go and buy it on a reputable exchange. Um, and I, I think maybe it's important to, to say what do we consider to be a reputable exchange and not by name. There are many of them and we're not really going to get into the different exchanges themselves. But it's really interesting to kind of look at the evolution of how exchanges themselves came to be. 
Um, you know, you go back to the very first Bitcoin transaction in January of 2009. You know, Satoshi sends Bitcoins to Hal Finney. Um, and at that point, it literally had no value. Um, there was no network, so to speak. There, All there was was a white paper and code and some chatter around it. Um, but it kind of snowballed pretty quickly um, by, I think, October of 2009. So, like, you know, eight or nine months after Bitcoin was introduced to the world, you started seeing people putting some value on it. And there was this uh, this kind of concept of exchange. And I think the first exchange rate, um, it was all posted on like these message boards where people would talk about Bitcoin and it was tied to like how much energy did it actually cost to mine the Bitcoins. And initially <laughs> that number was like, the, it was called the new Liberty um, uh, index, which basically said how much, um, how many Bitcoins for a dollar. And when it first came mm -hmm. out, it was like, 1300 and something bitcoins for a dollar. So like less than a tenth of a penny per coin. Um, and people weren't really doing anything with it other than the fact that you had these like developers that said, well, yeah, I'll write some code for your project. Just send me some bitcoins. And they used it as a mechanism to kind of come up with trading back and forth for, for different types of tech services, um, which then uh, turned into people trading it on PayPal, basically not trading on PayPal, but using PayPal as the platform to send people fiat money in exchange for Bitcoin. And the result of that was that PayPal got a lot of chargebacks. <laughs> um, I'm sure they they shut it down really quickly because it was just riddled with people saying, hey, PayPal, I sent money over your network to buy Bitcoin and never got any Bitcoin. So I want my money back. Um, just like if you buy something on eBay through PayPal in the early days, PayPal would protect that purchase. So PayPal was like, well, we're out. We're not going to, we're not going to underwrite, you know, these transactions where people are just getting ripped off. Um, and so that kind of led to the next iteration, which I think around 2011 was like Mt. Gox started in 2011. You had all of these European and there was a big one in Brazil um, and they all got hacked. I mean, you hear about Mt. Gox the most because it got hacked um, pretty much consistently from 2011 through 2014 when it closed. Mt. Gox, um, you know, famously lost what 700,000 of its customers' bitcoins. It, you know, it's something crazy like that. Even at the time, it was a lot of money, and now it's billions and billions of dollars worth of bitcoin that that were. Stolen, but I think that you know the. Do you know the where Mount Gox got its name? No. So Mount Gox was had something to do with Magic the Gathering. Mm. I think it was, I think it comes from Magic the Gathering online exchange. Could be slightly wrong about that, but I know it's based on Magic the Gathering. Sounds right. And so it was just this. It wasn't. It wasn't set up by like. A sophisticated institution. It was just, and I, I don't, I don't know exactly who was behind it, but they weren't particularly sophisticated, and the technology also wasn't particularly sophisticated. No one was 
really knowledgeable about it. I actually tried to create a Mt. Gox account, and I remember seeing the steps I had to go through, and I, it was international, and I had to either wire money internationally or I had to start a credit card that was an international credit card. And I just wasn't very comfortable with it. But I think the point is that back in, I don't even know what year Mt. Gox started, maybe it's 2011 yeah. or so, People weren't thinking about Bitcoin being 50,000, 60,000 a coin. Well, they weren't even really just, thinking I, of it as an asset class at that point. They were just thinking of it as... Most certainly not. It was a token at that point. And, um, and so there was no real need in most people's mind to have something that would be treated with the same level of fiduciary responsibility that you would see you know, on a traditional securities exchange. Um, but, you know... Once that hack happened and once all the other exchanges that existed at the time got hacked and, you know, they were centralized exchanges. So they had somebody that was an intermediary between the buyer and the seller. But um, it just it, there was no regulation. There was not good security. It was it was the Wild West. Um, so then in I think around 2014, you started seeing, you know, Kraken and Gemini and Coinbase, you know, kind of coming onto the scene and taking a much more um, serious approach to stewardship and making sure that, you know, the money that was being exchanged for Bitcoin uh, actually, you know, went to and from the people it was supposed to. And so um, I, that was a big shift from, you know, if you try to sell your Bitcoin on an exchange or if you keep your Bitcoin on the exchange, it's likely going to get hacked and stolen to now we've got real companies that have um, real controls in place to prevent people from, you know, constantly getting ripped off. Um, so I think in a way, in my mind, that actually helped support the value of the overall asset tremendously. Sure. I mean, it was it was able to onboard a significant number of new buyers. I know I had a Coinbase account, I know, going back to at least 2015. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, the exchanges really deserve a lot of credit for, for what they've done for the ecosystem and for the number of people that have been able to safely and reliably buy Bitcoin. Absolutely. Um, maybe talk a little bit about what you see as the current landscape of exchanges, when we talk about reputable exchanges, kind of what what makes an exchange reputable, and also, you know, we don't we don't say go buy your Bitcoin here. Um, what are some of the considerations, maybe that that you would tell our clients um, they need to think about when deciding where to buy their Bitcoin? Well, I think that the the more important thing uh, as far as buying it is is actually what you do with it after you buy it. And I know that may sound a bit strange, but regardless of how good the exchange is that you buy it from, and regardless of what controls and processes and security they have in place, you should not leave your Bitcoin on an exchange. And I'm going to repeat that. Do not leave your Bitcoin on an exchange. Yeah, one thing that um, that I meant to mention when I was kind of talking about the evolution of the exchanges is that those hacks 
that happened between 2011 and 2014, that was the reason that Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoin came into existence. Um, people started to realize, wait a second, I don't have to leave anything anywhere other than in my possession. Um, so I think that that was, um, you could also credit the, you know, the exchanges that, that ended up with very unhappy customers. Um, you know, one of the positives that came out of that is that it created a movement behind self-custody. I agree. And they're also, I think one of the, well, let's talk about some of the other ways that you can actually get Bitcoin other than the exchange. One of them is certainly to mine it. Mm-hmm. One of them is to accept it at your business. And there are a number of platforms out there that will let you accept Bitcoin and a number of other digital assets for your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could also do a personal exchange with somebody. Someone may owe you some money and you can, you know, they'll, they'll give you Bitcoin in exchange for that. And then there are also these meetup services where you can find someone online, usually going to be a stranger, and you go meet that stranger with cash, and that stranger gives you Bitcoin. And we would recommend very significantly against doing that. We think that is a very, very bad idea. Yeah, and, you know, the argument for doing that, and maybe the only argument for doing that is to acquire Bitcoin without having to go through the... Um, you know, the identity uh, rigor that's required to set up an account on an exchange. So, you know, in U.S., it's the KYC AML um, rules that financial institutions are subject to that says, you know, KYC is know your customer. So, you know, who are you giving an account to? Um, And while we understand that, you know, that doesn't, that's not the most private way to own Bitcoin. Um, going and meeting a stranger with cash is far inferior to to utilizing the system that you already use for all kinds of other things in your life. And really, our goal is to help drive the adoption of Bitcoin and to help people get their hands on it in a safe way. And you know. There are ways to get it that doesn't involve going to an exchange, but for the most part, um, there's going to be some level of threat associated with you know meeting somebody you don't know or don't know very well um, to exchange cash for Bitcoin. I agree, and I would also say that regardless of where you're located, you should always obey your local and national laws. You don't want to do anything that uh, could potentially get you in trouble in any way. You just want to be very clean about how you buy this. And I think we'll pivot back to some of the exchanges, some of the different things that you will get from the exchanges. So some, you know, there are different fee schedules or commission rates from the different exchanges. There are exchanges that are where you can only buy Bitcoin. You can't sell it. Mm-hmm. There are exchanges where, besides Bitcoin, they offer a significant number of other coins. And there are a whole host of reasons why someone would choose a particular exchange. Uh, 
I don't personally. I don't really think it matters so much exactly where you buy it from, as long as the exchange is is reputable. And by reputable, I mean one of the larger players that you know is being watched by regulators quite seriously. Mm-hmm. As long as you buy it from a reputable exchange, where you you really have no doubt that the funds that you're exchanging for Bitcoin will truly be converted to Bitcoin. And then as a, as a sovereign Bitcoin owner, you do need to make sure that you move your Bitcoin off of that exchange that I mentioned before. You're jumping and ahead I think to best practice number two. I am jumping ahead, but I think it, it does play a role in selecting where you buy it from. And I think my, the point I'm trying to make here is that find any place that, that kind of works for you. I know uh, – for Bitcoin butlers, we help people find exchanges that best fit their needs. Sure. And we're completely agnostic as far as that selection, meaning we don't have any – we're not trying to drive anything to any one particular exchange. We just want to help people find something that's going to work for what they want to do. And I do think that part of that focus needs to be on – what do I do with it after I buy it from this particular exchange rather than really fretting over the decision of which exchange to go with? Or deciding know- to use a specific exchange because they charge 25 basis points less commission than the other exchange, but they don't meet your objectives. So saving that money you know, isn't necessarily worth it. Um, I think that's a key point, though, is that Everybody has different objectives with Bitcoin. Some people just want a dollar cost average into it until they own a certain amount. And there are services, like you said, that are only for buying and holding um, where you can't sell it. Um, and then there are people who, uh, you know, maybe they're, they've got an experience trading other assets um, and they want to buy and sell Bitcoin on a very uh, frequent basis. And that would point to a different type of exchange. Um, there are exchanges that make it more difficult or easier to move the Bitcoin to your own storage afterwards. Um, and so that's a consideration. So I think what it comes down to is what are your goals for owning it and holding it and whether you're planning to you know, sell it frequently or maybe never sell it. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, um, what else? I think that's it for really. You know, the the rule number one: buy from an exchange doesn't really need to go that deep. I think that the main takeaways need to be that you shouldn't be buying it from something that's pretty obscure. You shouldn't be buying it from something that or from an exchange that. Is a guy running out of running it out of his uh, garage? Believe it or not, I had a discussion with someone that it was probably six months ago that they had come up with some kind of algorithm to time buying the Bitcoin better, mm. and you supposedly paid like twenty percent less getting in. I wouldn't trust that. I'm not saying that what they're doing isn't going to work, but you know, that's not a reliable source to get it from. Sure. Well, um, but, so as, as long as people know to to really pick something that's I would call institutional grade, 
And there are a number to choose from. And like I said, Bitcoin Butlers is happy to help people with this. We do not charge anything mm-hmm. to help people with this, uh, with this, with acquiring Bitcoin. The for full transparency, the exchanges pay us a portion of the fees they collect. They all pay us the same portion. So we stay completely agnostic. And you and I have discussed that one of our goals with this is to be like a consumer reports. Sure. That we will put the time and effort in to study the pros and cons of each exchange to understand what they offer, who they, you know, who that would benefit, and to be able to provide our clients with some real guidance and some, I'll say some, some honest guidance as far as which exchange to use. And, and for some people, they may want to use more than one exchange. I know sure. that I personally use three different exchanges. Same. I've got multiple accounts, and uh, there are reasons for using each of them. Exactly. All right. Well, um, I guess uh, next time we'll dig into number two, which is uh, store your Bitcoin in a multi-sig wallet. But before that, if uh, anybody wants to read our best practices guide or our sovereign inheritance planning guide, you can go to our website at btcbutlers.com or on Twitter at btcbutlers. Um, you can email us info at btcbutlers.com. Um, and our DMs are open in Twitter as well. So if you want to reach out to us, if you have any questions, if you're interested in um, help with any of the best practices, then uh, we'd love to talk to you. Sounds good. And maybe next time for the second podcast, we will have some intro music. Then again, maybe not. We'll see. All right. Be well. You too.